0: Actually, first of all, thank you for being here, because you could have been sunning yourself on Brighton Beach this morning, this October morning, couldn't you? Wonderfully warm. Um, but thank you for being here. Now it occurred to me this week uh, that some of you, some of you might be curious about this sylph-like frame. <laughs> now, when I say some of you, I mean I mean one or two of you. I mean possibly only one, but one's enough. Might be curious about this Sylph-like frame, how this slender form is maintained. I mean, it is a bit of a mystery, particularly if you consider the amount of cake, not to mention the cheese that I consume. But there is an explanation, and the explanation of that mystery, as with most mysteries in my life, it is all about a pretty lady. Here she is. <laughs> Now, this is Bailey, who, with me, needs a run every morning. And We go off to the woods and the fields near our home, and, well, we run, but I need to share with you, something really weird happens. You see, we run for a while, and then I get this urge. When I say an urge, it kind of goes, it looks like this, it goes... (gasps) I get the urge to stop running and to walk. But that's when something really weird happens, which is that if I'm kind of walking through the woods and then come out into a field and there's somebody in the field who might see me, my body sort of takes over and it starts running again. I mean, when I say, I mean, I don't mean jogging. I mean, you know, running. I mean, we're talking chariots of fire here. Um, and it's as if it doesn't want to be sort of caught Sort of slacking, you know. It, clearly, the body seems to want to give the impression that when it's out for a run, it really is out for a run, you know. And it's just like a con, a continuous run. It's a bit weird. If you can, you know, help me understand that mystery, come and have a chat with me later. Now, you have to think about that for a moment. Um, we are in week two on the, the subject of running of a series called the Great. Pursuit. And today, Julian and Libby have asked me to speak under the heading of an audience of one in the great pursuit. Now, you know, at the heart of our faith, at the heart of the gospel, there is a great exchange, a great exchange that took place at the cross. You know, the cross is like a wonderful diamond with many facets. And we, the more we look at it, the more we see. There's a great exchange in which everything that was rightly due to me and to you because of, well, my sin and my disobedience was put upon Jesus. And all the things that are rightly due to him because of his, well, because of who he is and because his obedience was made available to us. So we read, for example, that he was bruised, he was wounded, he suffered for our sins, for our iniquities. By his blood, by his wounds, we are healed. He was wounded, we are healed. He was made to look guilty so that we could look innocent, so that we could be righteous, we could have a right standing with God. He was rejected in order that we could be accepted into the loving arms of the Father. He took our shame, but then we get to share in his glory. He, we read in Corinthians, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we know his grace, who though he was rich, he became poor in order that we might be made rich through his poverty. He became poor so that we might become rich. He experienced death. He went into death in order that we might have a new resurrection life. The nature of the cross is in the form of an amazing, wonderful exchange. How right it is that we remember him, that we remember his cross as we come to the communion at the end of the talk this morning. How right it is that we worship him as we have been and as we shall later. Actually, let's, let's just pray for a moment. Let's just pray. Father God, thank you for sacrificing, for being willing to send your one and only beloved son, the prince of heaven, to earth to be the lamb of god to be the sacrifice for us to restore us thank you jesus that by your sacrifice we are put we are able to be put right with god thank you that because of you we can be clean we can be cleaned out thank you that we can be filled with your holy spirit thank you jesus that you've given us meaning and purpose in life. Thank you that you've invited us to be your apprentices, to follow you. And Lord, we pray that as a consequence of us being here today, we would just deepen our love for you and our commitment to be that apprentice, to follow you, to imitate you and take you, to extend your life into our world. We ask it for your kingdom in and through our lives. Amen. Now, having been talking about an exchange today, there is an invitation for us to make an exchange. To exchange our need to be noticed for something of far greater and eternal value. Have you uh, cracked a head on a child's head recently? I mean, I've not, but perhaps I should carry around an egg in readiness should the opportunity present itself. I ask because apparently this is the latest TikTok craze. Cracking an egg on a toddler's head and then putting it in a frying pan. The egg, that is, not, not the toddler. There have apparently been over 670 million views on TikTok of this particular pastime which has provoked one doctor in America to comment, honestly, I don't find this entertaining. We're literally smacking salmonella on kids' foreheads. This is not something that benefits them in any way at all. Though Rod Little, who I enjoy reading in the Sunday Times, suggests maybe it does benefit them in the long run. If it teaches them that their parents are slaves to their phones and social media. And everything they do is performative. Well, I like words. When I read that word, it made me think. Performative. Am I living a performative life? At the end, when the books are opened, will it be... OK, Brian, it's, it's OK, but it was all a bit performative. It was all a bit of a show. Is living a performative life actually robbing us of our best life? And are we slaves to our phones? Apparently in 2020, we averaged only, each of us, 3.7 hours a day, month on our phones, but month by month, it rises, and the latest figure you'll be pleased to know is an average of four hours and 14 minutes a day on our phones. Include laptops and tablets, it becomes six and a half hours a day online. Do you know that thing when you reach for your phone to send a two-word text? 20 minutes later, it's still on your phone. I see a few smiles of recognition around the room. You know, do you know the most wonderful, sorry, the most powerful, controlling development on on the smartphone? It was the invention, the development of the bottomless window. And do you know the man who developed that bit of technology won't allow his children to have a smartphone? Wise man. How often do we unintentionally? unconsciously, surrender wads of our time to our phones, to YouTube, TikTok, Reels, little recordings that pander to a short attention span. And go to a concert, a gallery, a sports event, even a walk in the country. And what do you see? You see people with their phones held high, not focused on enjoying the experience. They're that they're in but filming it so they can show it off to their group of real or imaginary friends on social media. I was here, you were not. Aren't I living the best life? No generation before us has had such an opportunity to draw attention to ourselves and to fritter away our time on triviality. Is it possible that I We need to take stock of how much time we are giving to these things and whether in our Christian lives we are being entertained into impotence. Some of you are like me, old enough to remember David Wilkerson and the cross and the switchblade and uh, Run, Baby, Run, few nods that all began if you read the beginning of the cross and the switchblade because David Wilkerson decided not to watch two hours of television each evening but to go and do something in service to Jesus now don't get me wrong Facebook's a wonderful thing and other social media platforms are available Um, All sorts of positive things we can can benefit from a platform like Facebook. I have family. I have a daughter and family, two lovely grandsons in Vancouver. And my daughter and husband are very conscious that they have taken themselves about 14 years ago to go and live in another country, and they are conscious of sharing their life with us. And one of the ways they do that is via Facebook, and it's wonderful, we really appreciate that. And there's lots of other positive things about it. But when we post on something like Facebook, other social media platforms are available. Who is it for? What's our motive? If it's to say, I'm on holiday somewhere absolutely fabulous, uh, or I'm out-out, having a great time, is it? You know, don't I look successful? Don't I look important? Aren't I living the best life? If that's what I'm doing, what am I doing? I'm performing. I'm living a performative life. And how do I know if I'm performing? Well, I'm looking for applause. I'm looking for a clap, a like. And every little like gives me a dopamine hit. Am I telling a story when I post on social media, telling someone something they actually want to know about or will be genuinely interested in, or am I just ego-stroking? Am I informing or am I performing? There's this great lie that we so easily buy into that our happiness will come from being what others think we ought to be. That living up to other people's expectations will somehow keep us safe and make us happy. It's a big lie. It really won't. Our need to be noticed didn't begin with social media. Anything we do with a whiff of, I hope someone's seeing this, is all part of a performative life. Sidebar, when I stand at the front or in the middle or at the back and raise my hands in worship, what's going on? Am I thinking, do I look spiritual? When I sing a beautiful harmony in the the worship, it's my thought, I hope someone's hearing this because I think it sounds great. Who is it for? Who is it? For. Not that I would want you to become inhibited in worship. I mean, let's face it, we're British. We're inhibited enough. We don't need any help with that. But, you know, when we read about the account of King David, bringing the Ark of the Covenant down to Jerusalem and dancing before the Lord in his ephod, whatever that is, which upset his wife apparently. She didn't like it. And his response to her was, I will become even more undignified than this if if I am freely and extravagantly worshipping the Lord my God. And I think that's recorded actually to give us an example that we should feel free in our worship of the Lord, because he's worthy of our extravagant worship. But I think at the same time, we have to have a little bit of sensitivity to the people that are around us. So I will share with you that sometimes in worship, I feel I just want to dance like David. But rest assured that if I do, I'll go to the back, possibly even out to the atrium. That way I can avoid divorce. (laughs) But, you know, whatever we do, let it be for that audience of one. So, end of sidebar. Why do we do this? Why do we perform? Why do we want to be noticed? It's because we're conditioned. We're conditioned by our culture, especially by advertising, which we've been exposed to all our lives, to want a certain idealized kind of life. But most of us have limitations that prevent us from realizing that life. So what do we do? We look for ways to optimize ourselves, to overcome those limitations and achieve the life that we think we want. But we not only want to experience this life, we want others to see that we are. In reality, maybe we could never actually live up to these ideals, but at least we have Insta, where we can post pictures to give people the impression that we are, that we are making it. Will Storr, in his book, *Selfie*, how the West became self-obsessed. It goes so far to claim that the pressure to live up to the standard of perfection that our culture demands of us is actually killing us. Do you think maybe it's possible that we spend too much effort, too much emotional energy, too much anxiety concerning ourselves with what others think? What's the answer? What can set us free from being led along and dragged down by the fear of other people's assessments, other people's judgments? How can we escape this pressure to live a performative life? How can we trade in our need to be noticed for something more substantial, something of value, something of eternal value? The answer in a world is to take hold of the gospel. Jesus didn't just give himself, he didn't just die to save us from our sins, he died to save us from ourselves, from our ego, from our pride, which is at base what a performative life is about. Jesus holds out for us an alternative, something for which we can exchange our performative life, our need to be noticed. And he introduces it up front, right at the top of his very first sermon. And he says, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit. In 21st century speak, happy are those who don't feel a need To build a profile and a few verses later he goes on but firstly he explains something about the sin behind the sin bear with me he says fairly high up in the Sermon on the Mount you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. What's the sin? Murder. What's the sin behind the sin? Anger. Then he goes on, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who lusts after someone has already committed adultery in their heart. That's Brian's equal opportunities paraphrase what's the sin adultery what's the sin behind the sin lust now if you were there listening to jesus you might have thought oh wow jesus is really raising the game here isn't he he's really upping the standards phew that's hard just having a you know lustful look that's as bad as committing adultery No, that's not quite what he's doing. You see, Jesus is less concerned with our behaviour than he is with our hearts. Because that's where it all comes from. So, for example, we read in Proverbs, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, if you were thinking... This week, I really ought to memorise the scripture. If you invested a little time in memorising this scripture, I guarantee you that for the next 30, 40, 50 years, it will pay you dividends. Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Jesus wasn't trying to make life hard for people. He was focused on what's going on in our hearts. He wants us to keep a pure heart. But then he goes on, from the sin behind the sin, to talk about the sin behind the virtue. When you give to the needy, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honoured by men. Truly I tell you, They already have their full reward, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. What's the virtue? To give. What's the sin behind the virtue? To make a show of it. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. Truly, I tell you, they already have their full reward. But when you pray, go into your inner room, shut your door and pray to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What's the... Virtue to pray, what's the sin to make a show of it? And when you fast, do not be somber like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and show men they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they already have their full reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be obvious to men, but only to your Father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you just once or twice Jesus makes the same point three times and this is one of them he's telling us something he's telling us something really important he's telling us something about audience He's telling us about an audience of one and that there's a place, a secret, hidden place. And there's a reward for being there. Jesus invites us into a deeper place of being. Not in a public display, but in a secret, hidden place with the Father, a place of deep, Intimacy. Oh, that sounds good, Brian. But how's that going to help me? Excuse me. You probably know that we have two basic fundamental needs security and significance. We need to know we're safe, and we need to know that we matter. And I think, well, I know, Father God put those two needs within us because he wanted us to find them fully satisfied in him. And finding those, as we can, fully met in our relationship with him and in our position as children of God in Christ, in his family, can fully meet those needs of security and significance, to know that I am safe and that I matter. I'm a child of God. I'm a prince of heaven, as Billy Bragg, the great evangelist, would declare. How does that work? Well, let's take Paul as an example. St. Paul, he knew that we give way too much attention to worrying about what other people think of us. He knew that a performative life is a shackled life. He knew that there's a better way. Now, Paul needed to establish his credibility because he needed to influence people. And he came in for a lot of criticism, even within the church. And if you read, for example, his letters to the church in Corinth... It's clear there was a bunch of them that didn't like him very much. They didn't think much of him. And what was his reaction? What was Paul's reaction to what the people in Corinth thought of him? His reaction is to write to them, I care very little if you judge me. You see, he's serving before an audience of one. And he knew that because he was a good... Pharisee, he knew the Old Testament, he knew that the fear of people is a snare, it's a trap from Proverbs. Fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. Paul was not concerned about what any human thought of him, that wasn't his primary audience. He lived out his life, his service, before an audience of one, and so can we. But moving away from a performative life, a life where we seek to be noticed, to going unnoticed, does risk looking unimpressive. If we're not bigging ourselves up, maybe nobody else is either. And it may sound very unattractive, like denying ourselves, there's a reason for that because it would be denying ourselves it would be a kind of mini death for some giving up a performative life might even lose opportunities for the kind of socializing or connectivity that we think our goals our success depends upon the offer that Jesus makes is to follow me to death that's why Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. But then Jesus says, I will give you a new life, a countercultural, upside down, last shall be first, resurrection life, lived in unity with me. Jesus is saying, don't try to impress, don't try to honor the world, honor me, follow me, live in me. Jesus invites us to stretch our will in the act of crucifying the longing to be seen and admired. To go to a place that our ego would rather not go. A secret, hidden place of love and communion with Father, Son and Holy Spirit. A secret, hidden but fruitful life You see, Jesus invites us to live as an extension of him. And if I had more time, I'd like to preach again about the parable of the vine. But time's nearly done. When Jesus sent out the disciples, it was as an extension of himself. When we pray for the sick, when we give to the poor, when we make an unseen gift or an undeserved act of kindness, or when we tell someone about the forgiveness and the eternal life which Jesus offers, we are an extension of Jesus. We are serving and bringing his life into the world to extend his kingdom. But we can't do that under our own steam. As the parable of the vine would teach us, we have to remain, we have to dwell, remain, remain, remain. Jesus says it 11 times in that parable, remain, remain. We need to live our lives shared with Jesus, staying in communion, in contact, in communion with him. To be fruitful in this new life, it's essential to pursue a secret, hidden life in and with Jesus. And we can't do that on our own. You know, all the accounts of Jesus' life are peppered with his prioritising time. Sometimes it's still dark when Jesus gets up and goes out to spend a long time in the secret, hidden place with the Father. So, God's word to us today is... Will we make an exchange, a trade? Will we trade in our need to be noticed for a secret, hidden life with Jesus, remaining in him? What would it be like? What would it look like if we were a community of people who choose to dispense with our inhibitions And our anxieties about what other people might think of us. If we were a people who were determined to walk closely, to remain in him. Carrying his DNA, his gospel into the world. A world that desperately needs Jesus. Bearing fruit before an audience of one. Thank you. Thank you.